Many wondered if we'd ever get there, but we're here, Hebrews chapter 10. We're now really kind of like a summary of what he's been talking about this entire time, these, these entire 10 chapters here. So as we begin this new chapter this morning, we once again are faced with this issue, as he has been doing all along, of comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Here's what was going on in the Old Covenant. Here's what it stood for. Here's what was really happening. Here's what it represented. Here's what it meant to God. Uh, And then the New Covenant. Why it was necessary to have one. How the New Covenant priests are different from the Old Covenant priests. How the ceremonies are no longer necessary. And so on and so forth. So uh, many of us are tempted, especially in our theological camp here, to think of strictly as Old Covenant, bad, New Covenant, good, if we could kind of boil it down that way. And uh, we often think about it in those terms because we know that under the law, all of the sacrificial system, it could not remove the guilt of our sin, nor could it provide lasting forgiveness necessary to have eternal salvation. And so the temptation is just to boil that truth down simplistically to Old Covenant, bad, New Covenant, good. But the author of Hebrews doesn't really break it down like that, does he? He doesn't dismiss it that easily as if it's irrelevant. As a matter of fact, he does quite the opposite. He does indeed keep pointing to the inadequacies and the inefficiencies of the Old Covenant, and he's not trying to persuade these Jewish Christians and professing Christians to despise the Old Covenant. Rather, what he really wants them to do is he wants them to see that the law had its place, that it had a very specific function in God's redemptive plan for them. And he wants them to see ultimately that everything that the law was foreshadowing, everything that it was intended for pointed to its fulfillment in Christ. That's what he keeps kind of bringing us back to, bringing us back to, bringing it back to. All of it, every bit of it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And to demonstrate that, the author begins to lay the groundwork for what was accomplished for us in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And one of the most important things that was accomplished for you was the complete and total forgiveness of your sins. Jesus Christ and his finished work upon that cross provided for you complete and total forgiveness for all those who have put their trust in him. Warren Wearsby tells the story of a teenage boy whose mother was away on a visit, and so he found he had some extra time on his hands, so he decided to uh, read a book from the family library. I'm sure the same thing happens today with all of our bored teenagers. They get bored, they probably just run right to the library, don't you? His mother was a devout Christian, and so the boy knew there would be a sermon at the beginning and some application at the end, and there'd be some interesting stories in between. And while reading the book, he came across the phrase, the finished work of Christ. And it struck him kind of oddly. I think that was a, that's kind of a weird expression, the finished work of Christ. Why not say the atoning work of Christ? Why not say the propitiatory work of Christ? You see, this young man knew all the biblical terms, but he didn't know the Savior. Then the words, it is finished, popped into his head, and he realized the work of salvation was accomplished. And then he asked himself, well, if the entire work of salvation 
is finished. If the entire debt has been paid, what was there left for him to do? And he knew the answer, and it hit him like a ton of bricks. And the answer, of course, was nothing. There was nothing for him to do. He fell to his knees and received the Savior and the full forgiveness of sins. And that's how J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was saved. There was no work he could do that would ever pay the debt for his sin. There was no ceremony he could attend that would provide forgiveness for his sin. It was only in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that he could ever receive the complete and total forgiveness of sins he needed for salvation. Now, throughout this epistle, we've seen this primary theme that Christ is better, haven't we? All through this, that's the main theme of Hebrews. Better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than the Levitical priest. We've also seen that Jesus is a better high priest who ministers in a better sanctuary. He enacts a better covenant through a better sacrifice. But beginning in chapter 9, which we just finished, and then specifically in these first 18 verses of chapter 10, the author returns again to this necessity of the sacrifice and why this is so critical in the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He wants to make sure he's summarizing his final thoughts, if you will. He's bringing everything to a conclusion. Ten chapters now in 18 verses. He's going to say, here, here is a summary. I'm going to encapsulate what you need to remember before I tell you how to apply that in your life. Because from verse 19 on in chapter 10 until the end of this epistle, it's all application. You've had 10 chapters of deep theology, and boy, do you know it. 10 chapters of deep theology, and now we're going to get here to these last 18 verses. He's, just going, to, he's going to summarize it for you here and make sure that you get the main point. He wants to make sure you're concentrating on the main thing. So you may recall in chapter 9, verse 16, that in order for there to be a covenant, a last will and testament, that death must occur to enact the covenant. The covenant. Chapter 9, verse 22 told us that not only death was needed, but also that in order for there to be forgiveness, there needed to be the shedding of blood. Then in verses 23 to 28, we saw that just like death was necessary for man and the shedding of blood was necessary for man, so also Christ. He needed to die. And he needed to shed his blood to fully reconcile us with God. Death and judgment are the two unchangeable appointments for all men. So also Christ needed to die and shed his blood. Building off that foundation, the author begins in chapter 10. He's concluding his final points about Christ's sacrifice and all that it accomplished. He's going to repeat some things from these previous chapters in this closing argument, but he's going to expand his thoughts on some new items as well before we get to the application. But again, to accomplish that, he wants to remind us one more time why the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were insufficient, why they were ineffective, to accomplish what needed to accomplish to satisfy God's wrath and justice. They were ineffective. They were insufficient to secure eternal access to God through eternal salvation. So let's look at point one, shall we? 
in your notes. Point one. But first I want to read these first four verses and we'll come back to it. Here it is. First four verses of chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Our first point here is the Old Covenant sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. The Old Covenant sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. Notice here in verse 1, the first thing we see, for the law, what does he mean by that? He's talking about the ceremonial law uh, aspect of the Mosaic law, right? The, the ceremonial portion of it. The priest, the entire priesthood, the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices, they're all part of the ceremonial law. He's not talking about the entirety of the law, as certainly the moral law of God is still in effect today, right? Thou shalt not murder, honor thy father and mother, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Those moral laws are still in effect today, but the ceremonial law has been abolished. The law, he states, is only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things. Here the author uses two words to contrast the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That word shadow is skyon, and a shadow is, can never be a complete revelation of an object, right? When, when you see your shadow, it's not the real thing. It's just a likeness of you, but not an exact likeness of you. If you put a hat on, it would show a, a you as you look, uh, but not as you really look, as you look then with a hat. A shadow can never claim to be a complete revelation. It has no form. It has no substance. It has no real content at all. At best, it can just give you a crude outline of the true reality of that object. And beyond that, once the true reality has been seen, the shadow really becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? I mean, we don't really need the shadow. It doesn't serve any purpose for us, personally. It has no content. It has no substance. There's no reality to it. A shadow is interesting. In fact, a shadow in and of itself is really useless. For example, the shadow of a key cannot unlock my door, right? Right? The, the shadow of a quarter pounder with cheese cannot satisfy my hunger, right? The shadow of a box of cook I'll just stop right there. You know, I've used this example before, but when I moved away to go to school, before Cindy and I were married, we were separated by a four-hour drive. We were uh, just barely 18 years old. We'd only see each other every two to three weeks. And I had a picture of her from high school that I carried with me, and I would find it very comforting to look uh, at it while I pined away during those arduous years. But it was really quite inadequate 
because the picture was just a picture, right? I couldn't have any real conversations with her, at least she never answered back in her picture. Uh, and I could not hold her hand in the picture, right? There was no substance, no content, no reality to this picture. This shadow of a representation of my future wife, it just wasn't the same as having her next to me. That's what he's painting a picture here about the law. He's saying it's just a shadow of the good things to come. It's not a reality. It's a picture, if you will. But there's no form. There's no substance. There's no content to it at all. It's not as good as the real thing. It's not even close. Notice he says here next that it's not the very form of things. That's the other word he uses. And he uses a Greek word called ikona. And this is where we get our word icon from. What is an icon? An icon is an exact representation of an object. So Paul speaks of an icon in Colossians 1.15. He uses that very word there. He says that Jesus Christ is an exact representation, an icona of the invisible God. Same word. So our author is saying the law is just a shadow of the good things to come. It's not an exact representation of the good things to come. I don't think you and I can fully imagine just how shocking that would have been if you were a Jewish Christian or a professing Christian and you just heard that the law didn't really have any content, didn't really have any substance, and wasn't really real. Can you imagine that? That's really hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around. Can you imagine a Jewish Christian hearing a preacher of the word stand up and say that every single sacrifice that had been laid upon that altar for the last 1,400 plus years had absolutely no saving power? None. That the law was a mere shadow. But there was no form, no content, no reality to it, just simply a shadow of good things to come. What were those good things? Jesus Christ and his atoning work, his sacrifice on the cross. That was the good things to come. You see, the old covenant sacrifices were completely and totally ineffective, insufficient. And without the forgiveness of sins, those sacrifices were also completely and totally ineffective and insufficient for salvation and the access to God that comes with salvation. Notice the next, the text tells us in the next part of verse 1, they, what is that? The old covenant sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. Do you see that? That word make perfect means to bring to completion. To fully accomplish what God wants to accomplish. It's the Greek word teleos. What exactly is it that those who draw near need to have to bring them to completion or to fully accomplish God's redemptive plan? What is it? They need to have complete forgiveness of their sins. They need to have complete and total unhindered access to God. They need Complete salvation. In other words, they need to be made perfect, complete, fully accomplished, everything that God required. The text tells us that those old covenant sacrifices can never make us perfect. Can never. 
They could never bring us to complete forgiveness. They could never provide complete access. They could never provide complete salvation. The author of Hebrews just categorically says the ceremonial law cannot get you to God. It cannot do it. My friends, in order for you to have access to God, as I've told you before, you must be perfect. God isn't great on a curve. There's no kind of good versus everyone else, or I'm not as bad as that guy in God's view of perfect. There's no blind scale of justice where you get to outweigh your bad versus your good, and if you tip the scale for good, you're in. As long as you've had more good things than bad. That is not in God's economy at all. The standard to come before a perfect and holy and righteous God is that you have to be perfect and holy and righteous. And dare I break it to you, my dear friends, there's not a single one of you in here that qualify without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, including me. None of us are perfect. God is so perfect, so holy, so pure that no one can come into his presence uninvited and live in his presence except those who are absolutely perfect. Only those who have never, ever committed a sin, not even one. If you have even one sin against you, the Bible says that's all it takes. Just one sinful thought, one action or deed would be enough to make you repugnant to God. In order for you to come into and stay in the presence of God and fellowship with him, you must be perfect as he is perfect. How are you ever going to be given a perfect standing before God? Well, it says here, it could never happen through the old covenant sacrifices. Imagine the shock of hearing that. Notice that specifically it says, it can never happen for those who draw near. The implication from this verse seems to be that it's possible for someone to draw near to God and yet never have access to him. It's possible to draw near to him by acting religiously. It's possible to get near to him by going to church every week or by increasing your knowledge of God, but still never, ever entering into a relationship with him. I was around church people my, almost my entire life. But I, in my heart, I couldn't be any further away from God than I was. I mean, you can be near to all the activities surrounding God's people. You can be near his church. You can be near his ministry. You can, and yet be light years away from him in, his, in your heart. So the author is arguing here, especially in verse 1, that God created those ceremonial sacrifices, but the old covenant sacrifices were insufficient. They were incapable of bringing about forgiveness of sins, and thus they could not give you access to God. He states it very clearly. It can never, by these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. That's a pretty... Straightforward sentence, isn't it? They can never be made perfect. Over and over again, the authors use that phrase, make perfect, to refer to the forgiveness of sins, to bring about completion. So the point of verse 1, then, is proven in verse 2, 
Otherwise, he says, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. In other words, if sacrifices had worked to actually forgive you from sins, or forgive your sins, and bring you into the presence of God, why did they need to be repeated every year, every year, every year? If they accomplished what you think they accomplished, what's the sense in repeating them? Aren't you cleansed? Aren't your sins forgiven? Don't you have access to God? Why would God have you continue to go there year after year after year if they're ineffective and insufficient and incapable of delivering what needs to be done to make you complete? See, if you lived to be about 40 years old, you would have partaken in maybe 25 or 30 of these. For 30 years, you'd make that trek to Jerusalem and you'd lay that sacrifice on that altar 30 times in a row. What was the point of doing this year after year after year if those sacrifices actually were about the forgiveness of God? What's the point of repeating it if they actually were effective? I mean, wouldn't you just stop it if these old covenant sacrifices had actually accomplished complete atonement for your sins? What would be the point of repeating it if it's already done? Notice there you'd have complete atonement for your sins, complete forgiveness, and the worshipers, look at our text, no longer had any consciousness of sin. Now, let me say something real quick about that little word there, consciousness of sin. I think it's better to translate that removing the conscience of sin. That's how it's translated elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 9. He's referring here to your sense of guilt. Why is it that you have a sense of guilt about your sins? How come if we're doing these sacrifices year after year after year, I still feel guilty about my sin? Why is that? You know, there's a certain amount of guilt that comes to our conscience every time we sin. And we've talked about this before. I often refer to this as a warning light on the dashboard, right? It's God has built that into us to say, this isn't right. Danger. You're heading in a wrong path here. Now, you can sear your conscience, right? Or put your thumb over, put a, put a piece of electrical tape over the warning sign, but it doesn't make it go away. It's still there, doesn't it? Under the Old Covenant, they were never relieved from that sense of guilt. They would go and have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and they would leave there and know that they would have to sit in their sins for another year. Whatever they did from the day they left, the moment they left, until next year at that time, they would still have that sense of guilt hanging around, that tension of guilt. So the entirety of the time they were doing these sacrifices, some 1,400 plus years, year after year, Yom Kippur, every year, never actually did accomplish the forgiveness of sins. It never did give them access to God. It never did remove the guilt of their conscience. Why on earth then did God continue to offer those or have them offer those sacrifices year after year after year? What could possibly be the purpose if they're ineffective and insufficient and incapable of removing sin? Well, it brings us to point number two. And we see that in verse three. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of the sins year by year. Point number two, the old covenant sacrifices 
were a constant reminder of man's sinfulness. The old covenant sacrifices were a constant reminder of man's sinfulness. Look at our text. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The author of Hebrews is telling us that the Old Testament worshipers would have been reminded of their sin in the very act of having to repeat those sacrifices every year, year after year after year. My friends, God designed the Old Covenant ceremonial system not as a means of atoning for sin. That system was never designed to be able to forgive sins. What it did was point to the one who would forgive your sins. Romans 3, 21 to 26. You can jot that down and, and reference that yourself. We're, we're in a short of time. Romans 3, 21 to 26 tells us what it did accomplish was actually hold back the wrath of God. Just like the blood that was over the lentil on the doorpost when the angel of death, you remember that? The angel of death would come down and he was going to destroy all of the firstborn. You remember that? The only thing that held back God's wrath was the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. That's it. That's it. Although Israel's firstborn would eventually die, they did not die that night because God delayed his justice on account of the sacrifice they offered in faith. The same was true when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and Yom Kippur and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. God's wrath was withheld for another year. One more year. Think of it this way. Let's say a businessman goes to the bank to request a loan for a business venture, and he has a friend who's wealthy who agrees to endorse the note and repay the debt should the business venture fail. So the loan is made, the promissory note is drawn up, the rate of interest is set, the businessman signs his note, and the friend endorses it. A year passes, and the businessman's expectations have not materialized. So he goes back to the bank, and he asks for further credit and for an extension of time on this expired loan. The banker agrees and draws up a new promissory note, adding the new debt carried forward with the old debt. This goes on and on, and the loan gets larger and larger every year, and the businessman is getting deeper and deeper in debt, kind of like student loans. Each year, there is a reminder of his former debt and of his new liabilities. And the only thing that keeps him afloat is the endorsement of the friend who actually has the capital to pay the loan. That's it. It's like a promissory note on the debt of our sins. That's what happened in the Old Testament. The animal sacrifices were like a promissory note to hold back God's wrath for one more year. It didn't remove the guilt of their sin. It didn't atone for their sin completely, but it did hold back God's wrath for one more year. And every year, you just added new sin that needed to be covered, needed to be atoned for. But the debt was piling up. My friends, we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness 
that the old covenant sacrifices could never deliver. We need the kind of forgiveness that the new covenant would bring. We need the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31, 34. You've already seen it in chapter 8, verse 12. You're going to see it again in this chapter in verse 17. We need God to remember our sins no more. That's what we need. All the repetition of those ceremonial sacrifices did was remind them that they were still in their sins and they still needed forgiveness. We don't need another payment reminder, beloved. We need complete forgiveness. We need perfection. But our text reminds us the sacrifices in the Old Covenant could never make perfect those who draw near. Point number two, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were a constant reminder of man's sinfulness. Point number three, we see in verse four, finally here. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Point number three, the blood of animals can never bring about forgiveness for our sins. The blood of bulls and goats, the blood of animals can never bring about forgiveness of our sins. Notice that word impossible. That word impossible is an absolute term. It means just this. No way, no how, absolutely no chance of the possibility of that ever happening. It has the same sense of absoluteness that it did in the warning chapter in Hebrews chapter 6. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Not one person was ever saved through the offering of a sacrifice in the Old Covenant. Not one. You cannot atone for your sins no matter how many ceremonies you attend, how many rituals you participate in, no matter how many candles you light, or how many things you give up for Lent. It is impossible for you to have your sins put away through any of the actions that you do, no matter how religious they appear. There's no amount of religious activity that can take away your sins. No amount of baptismal waters, no amount of communion, no amount of church memberships, no amount of giving, no amount of serving, no amount of aisle walking or hand raising will ever, ever save your soul. It is impossible, the text tells us. Now, you and I are not people who participate in regular animal sacrifice, I pray. But all of us, or most of us, have been Christians for a long time. And we know what it's like, don't we, to wrestle with this issue of knowing the forgiveness of God for our own past sins. Some sins that we have committed have so touched us with a sense of guilt, it's really hard for us to let them go, isn't it? What we often try and do in order to deal with those sins is an attempt to atone for those sins in some way ourselves. In fact, the language has worked its way into our popular speech. You might hear this on TV of some politician. I've made a mistake and now I have to go and atone for my sins. My friend, you can't do anything to atone for your own sins. As believers, we ought to revel in the glory of that. And recognize that there is nothing I can do about my sins. Having committed my sin, 
There's nothing I can do to take it back or correct it on my own. I can only flee to Christ, and he has provided a sacrifice for that sin upon which I trust, upon which I depend, and therefore, based on my faith in his atoning work on the cross, it is finished, and that sin is as far away from me as the east is from the west. It is an incredibly revolutionary idea, but it's at the very core of what the gospel means. The author of Hebrews is arguing that point right here. He's saying we don't have repeated atonement in Christianity. We only have one atonement. And that one atonement paid for it all. It is finished. Beloved, I want to close with a true story of what it looks like in the life of a believer, when we truly understand what forgiveness has been given to us through Christ. In 1958, there was a young Korean student at the University of Pennsylvania, and he finished a night of study and penned a letter to his parents in Korea. And after sealing the letter, he left his apartment to drop it in a mailbox, and when he returned from the mailbox, a gang of teenage boys attacked him without speaking a word. And they kicked him with their shoes and pummeled him with their fist. One beat him with a lead pipe. Another had a blackjack. And when they finished their nasty work, they left him mortally wounded. And when police found him in the gutter several hours later, he was dead. And the citizens, the people of Philadelphia, were shocked at the level of violence in their community. The district attorney obtained permission to try the offenders as adults so they could receive the death penalty. Then an, a- an incident occurred which changed the entire outlook of the trial. You see, a letter arrived from Korea, signed by the parents of the murdered student and 20 of his relatives. And it read in part, Our family has met together, and we have decided to petition that the most generous treatment possible within the laws of your government be given to those who have committed this criminal act. To give evidence of our sincere hope contained in this petition, we have decided to save money to start a fund to be used for the religious, educational, vocational, and social guidance of the boys when they are released. We have dared to express our hope with the spirit received from the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. I don't know the outcome of this trial, But I know that the attitude and the parents and the relatives of the deceased students surrounded that trial with a whole different outlook, didn't it? Few of us will be challenged to practice forgiveness in that same kind of way. Some of you have. But all of us will face a situation which we must forgive someone who slandered us or threatened us or abused us, (coughs) excuse me, or injured us or stole from us. The marvel is that Christianity produces people who respond to those challenges. Christianity produces people capable of such forgiveness by the grace of God. Because Christ's sacrificial death has the power to produce in people an understanding of what true forgiveness looks like. And that understanding is rooted not in theory and not in some utopian society, 
and not in the belief that man is basically good, but rather in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. My friends, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, and you want to know what that feels like to have that kind of forgiveness in your life, I pray that you would come see me afterwards. Give me a call anytime this week. Give me a call anytime. But wrestle that through your heart. Know what that kind of complete forgiveness looks like in your heart. And friends, if you're here and you've already trusted Christ, I pray that you live out that forgiveness in your life every day. You are going to be hurt by things that people say and do. Some inside the church, some outside the church. But you will never face anything that required the forgiveness that Christ needed to forgive you of your sins. Ever. You will never have to pay for the sins of the world and be separated from God the Father. You'll never ever have to do that. Can we not forgive one another in comparison? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again for the challenge from your word. Lord, it strikes to our very core. It's hard for us, Lord, to forgive one another, and yet we see in Hebrews here as he's wrapping up all of this theology, we come back again to the forgiveness of sins. Lord, help us live like a people who know what true forgiveness looks like in our own lives and help us to mirror that as we forgive others who sin against us and help us be the first to seek reconciliation when we sin against one another. Because, Father, we understand what true forgiveness looks like. And, Father, I do pray again, if there's one here in our midst who does not know you, who can't fathom that every sin in their life would be completely forgiven, past, present, and future, through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, you would penetrate their heart as only you can do. Open their eyes to see that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. May they put their faith and trust in you. May the angels rejoice of another saved soul. Father, thank you again for the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.